Welcome to Ideas Batter, where we explore the ideas and intellectual trends that have helped shape the world today. In this episode, we feature another lecture in our series Psychology and Democracy, which was the theme explored at the summer school, The Academy, organised by the Battle of Ideas charity. The focus in this podcast is The Hidden Persuaders, the 1957 study by Vance Packard, an American journalist, social critic and best-selling author. The Hidden Persuaders is Packard's foray into how psychological methods used in arenas such as advertising are said to be used to tap into our unconscious desires. Reviewing the book, the New York Times said it was an authoritative and frightening report on how manufacturers, fundraisers and politicians are attempting to turn the American mind into a kind of catatonic dough that will buy, give or vote at their command. This talk reflects on Packard's work, looking at what he pioneered and what we have inherited from him. The lecturer is James Woodhausen, visiting professor of forecasting and innovation at London South Bank University, and a regular broadcaster, writer and author, including co-author of Energize, a future for energy innovation. This is part of a project that I have to look at the years 1957 to 63, really, and to think about what they meant for American culture from really Sputnik um, and 1957, the same year as uh, Packard published, through to Dealey Plaza. We see an enormous amount of writing by people on the left, generally in liberal quarters of American society. And uh, Packard uh, is one of the most important figures in all of that. We'll talk about some of those dissenters. I think looking at the book again, the way it looks so modern today, really, uh, you know, within the first 30, 40 pages, he's mentioned brands, which Naomi Klein thought she uh, invented, you know, 20 years ago. Um, He uh, mentions triggers as well, psychological triggers for people with, all of these consumer ads that are going on. And we know from Mick Hume's work how important that is uh, for, for us today. And uh, he also has this whole idea, really, that is so much incorporated today, but with more of a uh, cerebral and neurological and technological IT twist to it, uh, the idea that you know, we are uh, not in control of ourselves and that IT has conspired uh, along with addiction and so on to rid us of our faculties. Uh, that's something that I think we do inherit from, uh, from Packard. What other commentators have called the dopamine economy, ladies and gentlemen, is a kind of biological IT, because it's to do with your mobile, sort of contemporary twist on that uh, kind of powerlessness that, uh, you know, Packard attributes to people. So it's not the same, but his influence uh, very much lives on. And yet the remarkable thing is that although he was an enormous bestseller for years on the New York Times bestseller list um, and, uh, you know, continues to be in print today, uh, nevertheless, you know, not a lot of people really understand how much he pioneered so many of the ideas that in different forms are alive today. And I thought since Keynes has already come up uh, that it's worth 
having a look at what he said about, uh, just for once rightly, in my view, about how easy it is to labor under somebody's, somebody else's misapprehension, not even attribute it to them uh, in the case of, you know, how much we, we do follow the basic vocabulary of Packard, uh, but often we don't know who he is or people don't know who he is, especially given the moment of historical amnesia such as we have today. So uh, that's just by way of opening. Now let's get a few things out of the way right away. Um, who or what were the persuaders? I think if you look at the fantastic English cover, uh, which um, I, was, uh, I was five at the time, uh, it dominated my imagination. I know other kids who grew up to this book. The strong implication is uh, from all of this that despite the subtitle that you see there, um, the hidden persuaders are the ad agencies. They are the, the ads. Uh, they are some other forces from on high. When in fact, really, when you look at the book, what he's talking about is the hidden persuader is the subconscious. That's the thing that's persuading you to buy different things. And it's not the agencies and the ad people who are, who are hidden in any way. They like lots of publicity. What was hidden was uh, the depths of the mind, which is why he's always talking about depth boys. And uh, you needed special techniques beyond normal market research or what Americans call marketing research. You need special techniques, depth psychology to access those powerful uh, persuaders. Now, um, just let me say that before we go any further, that this focus on the unconscious uh, them um, was important to Packard, but there were two other developments preceding 1957 that we need to remember. One of them was as early as 1949 uh, or 1950 um, in a movie by Clark Gable, uh, among others, ad agencies running uh, radio advertising, you can see on the right there, were already the subject of uh, a major populist attack and so on. And the other thing was um, not just the book and the movie, but uh, even more importantly, the Korean War from 1950 to 1953 established a mass interest in uh, brainwashing. Uh, um, Edward Hunter, probably a CIA agent, published a thing in 1950 in Miami saying about the uh, Korean techniques. And the idea that people were sort of zombies uh, who could be taken over by alien forces was important in Don Siegel's terrific movie, not necessarily anti-communist, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, complete with the film noir blinds there. So just, uh, you know, it's important to see that uh, the, main, the, the main aspect of the title was uh, rather misleading, like many of the things surrounding this book, we'll see that. Um, and it, it wasn't the agencies, it was the subconscious. All right, now the same thing is, just to get it out of the way, was it about subliminal advertising? Um, and the answer is uh, no. It was very much reflected the era of Eisenhower and the rise of television, which succeeded uh, the radio and so on. But um, the whole story that he tells Packard about the popcorn sold in the cinema um, by means of a very quick subliminal act, uh, ad, um, is, it turns out to be a complete farrago. And, you know, showing that for one thirty thousandth of a second never happened. 
in the cinema that he talked about. It was all got up by this guy who was an advertising man. But nevertheless, it's important because uh, everybody still thinks without having read the book that it is about subliminal advertising. So uh, a very odd thing that he himself was deluded by this guy. And even odder is the fact that there are still uh, many, many people discussing subliminal advertising. There's legislation against it. There's very little happening in it. And yet it's part of the furniture for internet uh, debate nowadays. The thing to realize also when you go through the whole book, especially the, the latter third or so, uh, it's not just about ads and consumers. Um, it has much wider scope in many ways, and that reflects the ambit of psychology. The consumers gets the, the bulk of the book um, because uh, that's the new development we'll see. But let's just go back to some of the precedents. Um, Bernays was important for understanding public relations, the founder of public relations. That's also a theme uh, in um, Packard. Uh, and then when we go to the Second World War, a lot of the themes that were developed by psychology then were to do with man management of the workforce, as one might expect, of the army and all of that. So I just wanted to spend a moment on the crucible of the Second World War in terms of all of the people who became important uh, to what became, what was then personnel or industrial relations became HR. They were looking at the personality and personality types uh, in an industrial context. And um, it's amazing how many people still follow all of this BS that um, Isabel Briggs Myers uh, developed from Jungian psychology. That's used in the workplace very much at the moment. Second World War, also uh, the origins of the focus group by the great sociologist Robert Merton. Origins of change management, uh, a Viennese again, or certainly an Austrian, um, and nearly everything that's important for psychology today, behavioral science, change management, leadership, consumer behavior, group dynamics, they even did um, consumer behavior in the Second World War because of the, uh, you know, privation suffered by families. So there was the morale of the troops, the psychological warfare, what housewives were doing, and of course, the, the German and the authoritarian background of, or anti-authoritarian, I should say, background of um, many of the emigres who came over uh, to the United States and um, before and during the war, if they were able, uh, that became important. So uh, these people like Lewin uh, were some of the, the main architects, really, of um, psychology today. And, the workplace was important to them all, so it was to Elton Mayo, the Australian psychologist who was in the Hawthorne experiments in the 30s and then pioneered organisational development uh, in that period. So the thing to remember about this is that all of those uh, different aspects of uh, psychology, its use, PR and also HR, and also what Packard calls fundraisers, which by which he means charities and philanthropists, they all used, like politicians, the techniques of persuasion. And in fact, uh, Packard may have been the first person to suggest that politicians in America were selling themselves and persuading people like soap powders were. That whole metaphor for American politics, we probably owe to him. All right, briefly about him. Uh, he... 
um, was a muckraking journalist. I did a bit of research on this. I'm very poor to uh, realize only now that muckraking was something that was good in those days. Roosevelt, the first one, felt even as a Republican that you needed journalists uh, to muck, rake up the mud and find the bad stuff in society uh, to fix it. And Packard was very much in that populist sort of tradition in terms of finding the dirt, at least. He suffered in the Depression. He was a farm boy, kind of had a very much nice time in all of that, uh, and um, went through that whole experience. And he was also tutored by a prominent member of the Chicago School of uh, sociology, uh, Willard Waller, who did work on education and also the sociology of Private Ryan, really. And that probably opened him up to a skeptical, but not uh, a leftist point of view on American society. He joined one of the populist magazines of old uh, called The American, but at a later stage after the initial 1910s or so on of populism, it had lost a whole political uh, dynamic, the American, and closed just before he went over to write the book very quickly, I think in two months. Uh, he did that. So he was a journalist. He, he joined a ex-muckraking periodical. Muckraking was good. He was in that tradition, but he wasn't really left wing. He was a Democrat. A Democrat. And here he is a year after launch or so. So uh, summing up on that, um, he was conservative in a small C because he felt that the American way of life was being fundamentally challenged for the bad by these depth boys, the psychologists, and also, uh, you know, by advertising, by ad men, uh, and the, the ethical dilemmas suggested by this uh, psychological approach when it was adopted by politicians in particular. Now, how do we situate uh, what he was uh, doing? I think we can make some useful points very briefly. What is America? I mean, what is it exactly? Uh, I think when you're dealing with a continental economy like America's, one of the things that strikes is the enormous factory system as was, and uh, the distances, and the, the need to eat. They're very keen on that. So what we can say is that American political economy has been dominated quite a lot by the imbalance reflected in 19th century panics between production and innovation on the one side and actually getting it all sold and selling it on the other side. So America pioneered brands and advertising and all of these things. And those disparities between production and consumption and how to mediate them through the department store and through the railroad uh, and through the telegraph uh, and the refrigerated railroad car, uh, the United States Postal Service, to mediate them with new media. America pioneered all of this stuff to try to solve the imbalance between production and consumption as it saw it. And it was a big innovator in all of those mediating links. And it continued in the 30s when, uh, you know, there appeared so much that could be done technologically, but people were so poor uh, on the other hand. Now, why do I mention all of this? Uh, I'm not very happy with that theory because what it reflects is somebody who Keynes was very uh, keen on and 
uh, which we're very contemptuous of, which wasn't uh, publicly discussed at the time, but is an aspect of Malthus's political economy where the lack of consumption of the masses becomes a major factor in uh, crises and things like that. And the focus on the consumption of the masses is something that's been inherited th from Malthus to Keynes and unconsciously, if you'll forgive the phrase, was something important to America at the time. So that was uh, kind of the background um, for uh, Packard's discussion. He was influenced by people he quotes, the sociologists of groups and of work, um, workplaces and of adolescents and other people, uh, David Reisman. So he wasn't just looking at consumer society, as I said, and also uh, the other writers from that era, um, Reisman was around 1950, uh, Mills a little later, and then um, also, uh, yeah, you've got uh, people like that. So all of these sociologists were important who were looking beyond the consumer society. But by the time Packard got to write later in the 50s, these kinds of products were taking off in America. And a lot of people were finally getting a little bit affluent. A lot of people were still very poor, especially poor whites poor, um, and blacks, obviously. But you then had, therefore, the principal concern of Packard later on in the 50s was these consumer products. And for him, the the Finns were too, just too much for destroying the American way of life. The, the conformity denounced by White and Reisman and some of the wider sociologists worried him because it threatened American individualism. And the morals behind all of that worried him. And he felt that it all originated in the fact that ads had to do more because America had got so much technology and production going for it by the late 50s. The boom was so strong, and yet it was faltering unless it got all of that consumer expenditure that was, uh, you know, lacking because there was saturation. The products were the same. The brands were identical. You couldn't own five fridges. And so that was the problem as he saw it. Very glib analysis. And by the way, prices and incomes, prices and incomes, never appear in his discussion of purchasing or any of that, right? It's just not there. But it is just a question of psychology. So the... Um, that's the period that he reflected. And we can see, uh, you know, in terms of questioning the direction in which mass consumer society was going, he uh, in, and America was going, he was part of that dissenting tradition that by the time in October of that year, he published on April the 1st of 57, by the time Sputnik happened, then lots and lots of people were critical of the Eisenhower years, and worried about the direction of American society. And therefore, you see in all of this, just after he published, many people going on the same themes about uh, how much um, consumer desire was being developed uh, in an un-American kind of way, especially the Canadian economist Galbraith. Now, the subsequent writers who are in this distinct, uh, dissenting tradition didn't always talk about consumers, but the question of morals and the course of American society was important to them. And of course, Betty Friedan, 1963, did talk about the happy housewife syndrome in terms of having two TV sets and how all of that was a load of BS. 
So by that time, uh, the left was a little bit more in ascendant in the 60s, but this focus on consumer psychology continued. So I think I'll skip some of the other people who draw on this, but one's malleability, whether by the city uh, or by media, and the, the choice of media was so important in all of this, uh, reflects this sort of collapse of the subject as more and more American commentators, often of a liberal persuasion, pile in uh, to say all of this stuff. Now that leads me to the most important part, which is uh, what uh, Packard is really saying is that uh, people can be manipulated, but as somebody already said in the earlier session, um, manipulation doesn't tell us everything. Uh, it, what's more important is that it's not the manipulators, it's the, the view of the human subject uh, as being susceptible, as being suggestible, as being gullible, uh, that's um, you know, logically prior to the idea of manipulation. So if you look at the celebrated but never read uh, writer Maslow, in fact, he understood, a bit like Packard, that there was more to human beings than just consumption. Packard himself talks about goals and purposes and things like that, not just human needs. And that's something that we need to uphold because it's what marketing people never think about, uh, you know, the, the, our capacity to judge, to make moral decisions, uh, to... to um, learn from each other and to progress and so on. But what, happened, what, what people are much more concerned to do today is to stress the deterministic side of uh, the human subject. In other words, they, they are, I mean by that that they are determined by their buildings, by their environment, by their psychology, by media, by dopamine and so on. They have no independence in all of this. Um, so for Packard, uh, you know, the, the, the point of departure and what he has entrenched very successfully uh, over the past 50 years is that um, it's not just that we're manipulable, it's that we begin and start from the fact that we are un not in control of our inner drives and uh, we are mostly needy. And that's the big problem that he establishes, which uh, is now even more perverted today uh, than it has been more than 50 years ago. You've been listening to Professor James Woodhausen give an introduction to a book club discussion of Vance Packard's The Hidden Persuaders. The talk was part of the Academy 2020, which explored the theme Psychology and Democracy. We'll be featuring all of the lectures from that event here on Ideas Matter podcast, so to make sure you don't miss out, then please do subscribe through your usual podcast channels. If you appreciate our work, promoting engagement with the world of ideas and creating practical forums for discussion and debate, and if you can manage a donation, then we really would be grateful. Please do visit our website, battleofideas.co.uk, and click on the donate button. Thanks. Ideas Matter podcast will return for the final lecture in our series, Psychology and Democracy. The lecturer will be Professor Frank Ferredi on scientism and the manufacture of consent, then and now. Mm -hmm.